People are at the heart of every startup success. And nobody knows the importance of recruiting the right talent more than today's 40-minute mentor, Zoe Gervier-Hewitt, operating partner for talent at the VC firm EQT Ventures. Zoe's career started in HR and talent at Apple before transitioning into tech in the high-growth startup Mindcandy. She then became one of the first employees at Entrepreneur First, where she built a global talent acquisition and assessment function from scratch. After four very successful years at EF, Zoe joined the leading VC EQT, where she acts as both an in-house talent advisor to the investment team and also to EQT's portfolio. In today's episode, we talk more about Zoe's unusual route into the sector, having done a degree in history of art at Oxford University. And we also take a deeper look into the biggest learnings from her career so far, including how growing up in a mixed race, working class family helped to instill in her a strong work ethic that has aided her throughout her career, the importance of brand building and proactively searching for talent when you're a small startup, why a structured recruitment process is key to preventing biases creeping into your decision making, plus her advice for those from underrepresented communities looking to raise investment from VCs like EQT. Zoe's passion for developing talent really shines through in this episode, and it was fascinating to get her perspective on recruitment in the tech sector from someone who is a bona fide expert. I really enjoyed chatting to her about this topic, which I am particularly passionate about. So if you've recently founded a startup and are looking to expand your team, or you're looking for advice on how to raise from a top VC like EQT, or perhaps you're weighing up the benefits of a career in talent, Whatever your situation, I'm sure you'll benefit from Zoe's insightful advice. So with all that said, grab yourself a cuppa, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with the fantastic Zoe Gervier-Hewitt. Zoe, welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Um, I'd like to kick off, as we always do, with a 30-second overview of your CV. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, okay, 30 seconds. That's not very long, but let's uh, try. <laughs> um, so I think I was rather abnormally one of those talent operators that didn't fall into talent and people, but actually deliberately chose to, to walk into the function. And so after university, I sought out a talent-based role, partly because I'd always been intellectually curious about people's talent and the role that work plays in creating purpose in our lives. So I was very intentional that I wanted to work in a role that was to do with people and talent. So I actually joined Apple straight after university on a leadership development program. And that was my first real job. And there I was exposed to what I now realize was pretty progressive approaches to talent management and uh, employee well-being and engagement. After Apple, I spent some time then working in both operational and strategic talent roles in startups, the most significant being my role as talent director at a company called Entrepreneur First, who are a talent investor. And there I spent just over four years building a talent function from scratch, the recruiting and selection arm of, of what EF does. And yeah, recruited and interviewed many, many um, high potential, what we call pre-founders and, and helping them build their own companies from scratch also. And then my, where I am today, so I'm at a multi-stage venture capital fund called EQT Ventures, and I'm the talent partner there. And I work with both the portfolio companies, but also the internal um, investment team to make their talent-based decisions. And I recently trained to become a leadership coach. So um, yeah, that's a bit about my, my story so far. 
Wonderful. And it's, I think, Zoe, you're one of the first people I've ever met that has told me they didn't fall into a talent role. So that's, that is fantastic to hear. And given what we do, I'm particularly excited about this conversation and hearing a bit more about your career. So before we get into, I guess, what you've been up to in the last few years, I'd like to go back to the beginning, if that's okay. And do you mind telling our listeners a bit about your upbringing and and what kind of early career aspirations you had? Because it sounds like you knew quite early on what you wanted to to do. Yeah, um, well, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do okay. um, that, that early on, but I came from a working class family, um, Londoner, born and bred, and my grandparents were on my dad's side were from um, the Caribbean, so they were part of the Windrush generation. Um, and the reason I mention that is I think um, hard work and yeah, a strong sense of work ethic were instilled in me as sort of values from very early on. And if I'm completely honest, I was very academic at school and really loved learning. But when I got to sort of, you know, sixth form age, I was still not 100% convinced that I would go to university. And it was only that um, I had a set of opportunities and experiences that then sort of, yeah, I guess made made that a more exciting route for me. And I, I ended up going to the University of Oxford to study art history. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So it wasn't the sort of done career path or the done route. And I think that that contributed to my sort of apprehension and, and reluctance. But in the end, yeah, I went to University of Oxford, studied art history. And during my time there, I was considering a career in curation and working in museums and galleries. But I think I discovered in those years that I really loved technology and the arts world perhaps wasn't the most sort of progressive and you know tech savvy industry. So I decided that towards the end of my degree that I wanted to work in tech as a as a sector. And then that's when I sort of you know really reflected on what do I care about, what do I find um, intellectually interesting, and that was people and talent and how people can use their skills to achieve really great things. So that's when I um, started thinking more seriously about a career in, I guess, what back, back then was sort of just branded as HR and talent yeah. wasn't really uh, a function in its own right. Fantastic. And so many interesting things. I mean, we, we won't have enough time to cover all the things I'd like to ask, but I, I didn't realise that about about your background and you being the first in your family to go to university. And it's a particularly interesting point for me because I'm very interested in the topic of social mobility and I guess you're you're a great example of that in action and I guess one of the frustrations with places like the University of Oxford and and Oxbridge is that it's not always as accessible to individuals like yourself that may be coming from different types of backgrounds so one I think anyone listening to this you're a shining light of, of what can be achieved and that's it's actually a podcast that we've got coming up focused purely on social mobility so I'll be keen to get your your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, just on that, um, one of the experiences that I think really helped, um, helped, you know, me with social mobility was uh, something run by uh, an organisation called the Sutton Trust. And this might be something that you you talk about more in the future, but essentially the Sutton Trust is an organisation that helps state school children or first generation higher education students experience what university might be like before you've actually made the decision to go. And so I went on a summer school organised by the Sutton Trust and uh, that was the sort of lived experience for me about what it might be like to go to university that I couldn't get from my family because they'd never been and I they're a fantastic organization I've actually just recently joined their their alumni leadership board so I'm working really closely with them to grow their impact and and brand awareness brilliant brilliant well um it sounded like you 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 had a 
really interesting uh, degree, uh, different to a lot of people I've interviewed on this podcast, to be honest with you. And then you joined Apple's Rotational Associate Leadership Program. So it sounded like that was incredibly competitive. I read somewhere 17,000 applicants. So well done. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit more about that program and, and what it was that attracted you to that career in talent and, and why you might encourage others to kind of follow a similar path? Yeah, definitely. So it was a it was quite a new program for Apple when I applied for it. It was only in their second year of running. So it was a bit of an experiment for them still. But in essence, it was a leadership development program designed to select, I guess, high potential future leaders and train them on the best practices in talent management and how you build teams and how you lead people and, and lead projects with the intention that those people then would go on to become, you know, the future executives within inside the company. And it was a really really interesting program I always say that I always credit that program with sort of enhancing my interest in talent acquisition and in people development and I now look back on that experience as being you know one of the foundational moments in my career where I really developed passion for the way that you build teams and the way that you inspire and motivate individuals to come to work and to do what they do best so it was it was a fantastic program and there was a lot of investment from a sort of into the cohort of of people that I was part of. Why would you encourage others to follow a similar path in terms of talent? Yeah, so I think that if you're interested in talent and people, one of the best experiences you can get early on is um, just going somewhere where you can learn what great Mm -hmm. talent management looks like. And so even though since Apple, I've built my career in startup land, where you don't necessarily have the luxurious budgets or luxury of time to, you know, do world changing things. And I often think that I, because I had that experience at Apple, I was able to translate some of the things that the company was doing and apply it to the startup realm. So for me, it was about how can I go and learn what good looks like? Where can I do that? And for me, I think Apple was, it was a great example of a company that really cared about people and it wasn't just lip service that they were paying but they truly believed that one leadership and two employee engagement were levers of growth and levers of innovation and so if anyone wants to build a career in talent and people I think startups are a great place to go and learn and have that baptism of fire but I also think there's a lot to learn from from some of you know the more established and larger organizations that have been getting this right for a really long time. I started my career at a, a big international recruiting business and got fantastic training and, and amazing exposure. And it was never going to be the place for me forever. But um, I think you can take a lot from sort of more established businesses. So, uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. So you left Apple and, and I, you went to, to the other end of the spectrum, really, in Mind Candy. Um, so, you know, a, re- a much earlier stage startup and you managed the recruitment activities there. So that must have taken a bit of a, an adjustment for you, um, switching from a, a big organization to a smaller one. What, what was that like and, and what were the challenges you faced in that first few months? Yeah, so I think my intentions upon leaving Apple as well, all of, I've learned all of this great stuff that seems to create really happy, inspired, high-performing teams. So why not just take this to startups and <laughs> and just apply the same learning lessons and approaches there? And I think that was probably the first error I, I made because um, <laughs> there are lots of different conditions um, that mean that talent management and recruiting and people operations has to look different in, in fast-growing mm-hmm. startups. But I guess the thread that did carry through was that I was joining another other organization where people and talent were at the sort of core of the company's understanding as to what was going to fuel growth and fuel expansion and innovation. And so um, I always say that 
I've worked for many companies and they all seem to be very talent centric um, organizations. So Mind Candy was exactly the same. Mind Candy was actually a digital entertainment company. It was when I joined, they had a flagship game called Mushy Monsters. It was really popular in uh, children's playgrounds. And it was all about building a game that lots of people would want to subscribe to so in order to do that you needed the best creatives you needed the best engineers you needed the best commercial team to be behind building that game building that product and growing the company in terms of my role there I was helping it was a quite a newly formed talent team and I was helping with all of the recruitment activity around acquiring that talent and actually finding the talent in the first place so there was a, a big emphasis on sourcing and proactive identification of talent which was actually something quite new to me because at Apple there wasn't so much of a need to have to go after the best yeah. talent you had lots of great talent coming to you so it's a different <laughs> different type of problem and so I spent a lot of time just learning how do you first of all identify and locate the best talent within a function or within a sort of role and then more importantly and more um, difficult how do you convince them to quit whatever they're doing and to jump ship and come to this you know much earlier um, company where you, you don't have sort of the established brand there and then so uh, I learned a lot about yeah how do you um, build an employer brand that is attractive and, and how do you do successful outreach yeah fantastic and, and it's something that I think is worth even if you go a slightly different route with your career, I think that having those difficult conversations and having to think creatively about how you attract the best talent is is a great skill to learn and something that we, uh, I guess, the JBM have to do on a daily basis. It's, it's not always the easiest thing, but it's good fun. And something you touched upon there that's it's, it's really interesting to me, um, a lot of our clients, I think some of the best ones that we work with are those that really put talent and culture and people right at the forefront of, of everything because you get a lot of business there's a lot of startups that the tech is everything and 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 almost get a bit distracted away from that that key point so was that instilled with you from apple then and how easy was that to, it sounded like you wouldn't have joined probably if it if uh, mind candy was a different culture in that respect but it'd be good just to understand the difference for you yeah i think upon reflection it, it was i was probably quite naive after i left apple because i just I remember coming out just assuming that all companies put people and talent at the center of, <laughs> of uh, what they do. And, and, and it was, you know, of course, it was the way that you created value from, yeah. you know, having a very talent centric approach to the way that you build the company. That's obviously not the case. And there are lots of companies that, that put something else at the center. But I think it, it definitely did come from Apple and, and then also from my personal interest and personal passion and belief that it's all about you know, finding people, identifying their talent and then getting them to do what they do best and, and creating the optimal conditions for them. So, mm. yes, I, I, I think it probably was. And you had this incredible journey there. You built the entire talent function from scratch, but it, it can't have been an easy call to, to go to a complete startup and do that. So how did you know that the timing was right and that the company was right for you at that time? Yeah, I think the honest answer is I didn't, but I remember, being, <laughs> yeah, I remember being really, really excited about the founders. So Matt and Alice, who started Entrepreneur First, were pretty much the sole reason why um, I joined, because I thought that 
the vision they had of the world and, and their belief that the most ambitious people should be founders and should be doing something more with their talents than just working in finance or big tech corporates was something that really resonated with me and, and a belief that I shared. And so I, yeah, when I think back to it at the time, I wasn't really making a detailed sort of risk. I wasn't calculating the risk yeah. <laughs> in, a very, in a very structured way, but I just felt very compelled by what EF stood for and what the, and what the founders wanted to build. So yes, it, it was probably a, a, quite a risky decision, especially because I was, you know, love my job at Mind Candy, but I think there was something about it being an opportunity to join that founding team and build something that didn't exist and, and go after this really quite hard problem that really swayed my decision to, to join them. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the power of the founders, the, the sort of inspirational founders is, is such an attractive lure. I didn't have that with JBM because I set, set it up on my own. So I could say I was inspired by the founder, but <laughs> I do see that there's a lot of a lot of firms we work with that I do come away from certain meetings. And I was like, wow, if I wasn't running my own business, I would love to work with you. So I, that completely resonates with me. Well, you had some incredible results uh, during your time at EF. You built the talent acquisition and assessment function you led a global team across Europe and Asia. What was it like building that function out from nothing instead of sort of being in an already established business? And what for you were the biggest takeaways from that experience? Yeah, so I remember when I first joined, it was a really exciting time because there were lots of things that hadn't been figured out and a lot of problems or challenges where um, we were searching for the answers and we were trying to search for the model. And actually, when I joined EF, I'm pretty sure they were still sort of a not-for-profit and there wasn't the the venture capital model that exists today in the company. So there was lots of really exciting questions that we just were setting out to answer. I guess in the, in the beginning, in the first few years, it was very much about just proving does this work? <laughs> well, hopefully it works. Um, we're all here because we think it can work, but I guess we needed to show the world that. And so I remember one of the challenges in the beginning was repositioning EF as a, a brand that would be attractive and desirable to engineers. And one of the early learnings that the, the founders had stumbled across was that in order to increase the chances of tech startups coming out at the other end of the EF process, you probably needed to have quite a high concentration of technical talent coming in Mm -hmm. at the top of the funnel. So up until that point, I don't think EF had really sort of solidified their and positioned their brand as one that was, I guess, desirable and known to a lot of great technical talent. So in the early days, it was very much about partnering with institutions and organizations that were, I guess, home to lots of great engineers and lots of great technical academics and being that present brand and that signpost for entrepreneurship. Mm. So there was a lot of partnerships and a lot of just brand work in the beginning, a lot of marketing. I also carried through the proactive sourcing element, the work that I was doing at Mindcandy in terms of actually going out and identifying people that you wanted to be part of your company. Um, I carried that through to EF. And so one of the first things I did was set the talent function up to be heavily weighted towards the sourcing of talent um, instead of waiting for to see what came in through the application. Mm. So yeah, there was a lot of groundwork to lay in in the early years. As the model evolved and as cohorts were recruited and results were coming out, that side, I guess, got got a little bit easier. Brand recognition Mm. went up. The number of applications went up dramatically. And there were new, new challenges to solve, new problems to solve along the way, such as 
selection how do you select the people that have the most potential to be a successful founder and how do you turn that into something that is repeatable and scalable as you're setting up these new sites across the world <laughs> so yeah there was it was a never never ending set of challenges yeah it does sound like it but what a ride and and you must have learned so much from from the experience you, you reference challenges there and i guess working with start building startups and being a part of a startup as well there will have been many difficult days uh, alongside the, the the good ones so what well, is there any one particular challenge or situation that stands out to you that you look back on now and maybe laugh but at the time was particularly difficult to deal with yeah many um, <laughs> just like training through the backlog of uh, ones that i could pull out I, I think one of the the constant challenges and it was it wasn't an easy problem to solve but one of the things we needed to balance was at the same time, you wanted to increase the brand awareness of EF and you wanted everybody to know that EF existed, but you only wanted the right people to apply. <laughs> and so I think it was a constant sort of challenge to manage the selectivity of, of the cohorts, mm. whilst also promoting entrepreneurship as this accessible career path. So balancing that desire to be highly selective and highly exclusive with not you know compromising on how accessible you're making it for people mm. to come and try to build a startup because at the end of the day and, and i think now I, lots of people would agree ef has done great things for the ecosystem in the uk yeah. uh, the startup ecosystem and you know more people are building startups and successful mm. companies because of the f um, but at the same time we were trying we were sort of fighting against this I guess, sort of popularity of entrepreneurship. And I think there were definitely a few types that would apply every year where they probably didn't really want to be an entrepreneur, but it sounded cool. And so yeah. <laughs> you had to sort of build a process that could select out the people that weren't really doing it for the right reasons, um, but at the same time remaining sort of open enough that you weren't, you know, selecting out someone uh, unfairly. That rings true to me because we've always had a kind of quality over quantity type model and approach to the search we do. And yet if, if, we get so much inbound because there are, you know, lots and lots of managing consultants and bankers and, and other people that want to work in scale ups, but realistically just never really meant to, to do it. But it is a sexy industry. So you end up spending a lot of time just having those conversations. And it's a kind of an education piece. I think that summarizes it really well. It's the, the constant sort of tension between quality and quantity. And as you know, um, in this world, there is a bias towards growth and, you know, growing numbers in the funnel but at the same time you want to make sure that you're not diluting the quality of inputs or outputs in, in the yeah. funnel so yeah just to that point i think in this climate it's kind of covid post-covid world and um, there'll probably be there'll be a lot of a lot of talented people on the market and you know i think it's safe to say that there'll be a lot of people struggling and and, and probably some desperation will kick into some people that will apply to lots of things and it's, it, it makes a lot of sense i think what about what about the founders that are recruiting specific roles right now and are getting overwhelmed with the number of applications do you have anything from your time that might be useful to share for anyone listening that is having that issue right now yeah i think the one thing the one learning i did have at ef was that this is where your the brand that you put out into the world as a as a fan can be really helpful and um useful because I think it's really important to speak to the types of talent in, in your brand and messaging and marketing. I think you want to, the right people that you're trying to reach to want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I don't think you need to be putting out a message where 
it appeals to everybody and, and all people. So I think what we got smarter with at EF over, over time was being quite targeted in our messaging and quite specific and tailored towards speaking directly to the types mm. of people that we were trying to attract. And that had a natural effect on the um, applications that would then come through to, to the company. So I think, yeah, brand can be your friend and, and yeah. the things that you put out there. But then on the, uh, on the flip side, I think there's also something to be said for just get, becoming quite good at you know, designing a, a filtering process um, on the in, on, behind the scenes. So we also spent a lot of time just coming up with really clear, you know, assessment criteria that we could use in the very early stages of, of selecting people that we wanted to put through to, to the later stages. I think that's great advice for anyone listening that may be struggling at the moment. That's 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 super helpful. And um, so at EF, you assessed, I think probably what a thousand founders. You advise the portfolio companies on hiring, and I guess that especially at that early stage, it's so critical to get it right. What in your mind makes a great founder, and what do you, what are the key attributes that founders should be looking for in in those early stage employees? Yeah, this is probably the the um, most asked question that I get, particularly with the with the work I do now at EPT. I think that. It depends. So if you're an investor and you're investing at a later stage, I actually think what you're looking for is slightly different to what EF was looking for. EF was looking for pre-founders. And so really what, what we were searching for there was, you know, does this person have high levels of ambition? Uh, is there a problem that they are excited to, to work on where they are uniquely well positioned because of their talents and their skills and their background that they actually have quite a, you know, a fair shot at, at doing something mm. there? And so it was much more the question, I guess, we were trying to answer is, could this person be a founder? I think yeah. it, for VCs who typically invest, you know, once a company is formed or at least once um, the early sort of frames, framework of a company is formed, the question is slightly different because you, if you assume that the person sitting in front of you is a founder, then I think what you're looking for is, you know, does this person have leadership skill to grow this company and scale with this company as as it grows and lead a team that's going to increase in size so i put a lot of emphasis on on leadership skill and i think linked to that is the level of self-awareness that a founder has because mm -hmm. there's going to be lots of things that the founder has never done before because they've not got buckets of you know years of experience and that's totally fine but i think if they have high levels of self-awareness then they will be able to better um, navigate the challenges that they're going to come up against. Yeah, I can say a bit more about the, the talent assessment work I do at Equity Ventures, but I think the important thing uh, I always remind the team of is that it's not uh, an endeavor to select founders based on, you know, traditional successful traits of entrepreneurship, which I think our industry were quite quite obsessed with, you know, mm. what's the the universal set of, of successful characteristics. I actually think it's it's far more situational and, and context dependent. So, you know, a founder building an insure tech company is probably going to have a different set of spikes and strengths to, you know, founder building a gaming company. And so mm. I think it's being really clear on what does the advantage look like here from a talent point of view in this mm. market or going after this problem. And are we seeing that in, in the founder? But equally, I think that it, it needs to be quite a nuanced assessment. I think whenever you're looking for the positive characteristics in a, in a founder, you also need to look for, you know, what might this founder do so well that it becomes a performance risk for them in the future. So, you know, making a sort of holistic assessment. 
Well, that's fascinating. It's a topic that I'm sure we could talk about for, for a lot longer, but it's really interesting insights. Um, I, before we come on to talk about EQT, which I've got a number of questions, I just wanted to ask you about interviewing and assessment because you know you've interviewed so many people over the years and and clearly honed those skills and it's not an easy skill i think it's safe to say and it's a, we hear a lot of the time uh, processes fall down because the assessment process and the interviewing skills are not always up to scratch i think so what are your top tips for founders or anyone that's running a process at the moment um, how can they ensure it it goes as successfully as possible yeah i i think my answer usually is two things so time and structure Assessment is so important or sophisticated um, ways of assessing talent, I think is super important, particularly in, in the tech industry and in startups, because we have a diversity problem. And I actually think that a lot of the DNI challenges we face as, a, as an industry is a second order effect of weak talent assessment. So I'm very passionate mm-hmm. about talent assessment in general. But I guess what I mean by that is so much of the way that we assess people for roles is based on gut and subjective you know, data that, that is in, in the process. Um, and I think that the more structured that you can make the process and the more time you spend really getting clear on like, what, why are we hiring this person mm-hmm. in this role? What do they need to know how to do when they come in? And you know, what are the, the skills or what would we see in their background that would lead us to believe they could do the job? The more time you can spend really fleshing that out and um, then building a set of sort of structured questions to use in interviewing, the more likely you are to, to make a decision that is not going to be sort of you know, flawed in judgment. Mm-hmm. But that said, we are human. I think it's all too easy to run a very unstructured interview process. And then if you get on with a candidate, you know, the questions you had went out the window and that's all very natural. So I think it's really about holding yourself to account to try to run the sort of identical, an identical process with every single candidate that you are meeting in, in your process. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a hundred percent the right way to do it. But I think you're right. It's very difficult, isn't it, when you when you have an instant connection with someone, a great rapport, you know. And often we're we're all guilty or have been in the past of of, of you know maybe leaning towards hiring in your own likeness. Uh, but actually, I think you're right. Just having that structure and being. I guess being very disciplined in terms of um, sticking to those criteria is is really important to avoid some of those biases creeping in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's easier said than done. And I think that there are characteristics that we are sort of you know, naturally designed to pick up on and, and think fondly of. And then, you know, that kind of alters the way that we, we perceive candidates. So the one I often see in, in, what, in the work that I do with our portfolio companies is the confusion of confidence and competence. And so if you meet a really charismatic and confident candidate, you have to work extra hard, really, to probe on, you know, whether they are you know, qualified for the job from a from a skills and talent point of view. Yeah, no, I, I love that saying. I may have to steal that one, Zoe. <laughs> the confusion of confidence and competence. Um, well, uh, you after very four very successful years, you moved on from Entrepreneur First to EQD Ventures, which is a, a very prestigious b- business. But for those that don't know what EQD Ventures is all about, do you mind just telling our listeners a bit about what you do and um, yeah, what a typical day looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, EQT Ventures is uh, a venture capital fund. We invest at all stages, pretty much from seed um, all the way up to growth. And we are distributed across Europe. So we have teams spread across London and Stockholm, 
um, Berlin, Paris and San Francisco. The sort of story behind Equity Ventures is that it's, it's a different kind of VC. And I guess what that means is we are built by a team of former founders and former operators. So actually, I don't think anyone comes from a, a traditional investing background. Everybody has been on the other side of the table building companies or, or founding companies. And so that means we do uh, investing a little differently. And, and I think we create value for our portfolio companies in a, in a different way. One, we, we tend to be, I think, more empathetic investors because we've been in, in the founder's shoes. But I think importantly, and, and this is where my role comes in, we have an operating team who spend the majority of their time supporting those portfolio companies and founders to build their in-house functions relevant to our, our background. So my role at EQG Ventures is talent partner and I support founders to build their talent functions internally, but also to help them hire and build their executive teams and people teams. Fantastic. I'm interested, Zoe, what do you think, given your role, what are the most common mistakes that founders make when they're building teams? Great question. I think that one common mistake that I see play out, not just within our portfolio, but I think across the industry as a whole is, again, it's kind of linked to talent assessment process and, and um, sophistication of, of uh, talent selection skills. But I think that in this industry, we do put a prize on credentials and you know badges is, is where, where people work, where they've gone to school. And I think one thing I often see is that when founders are assembling their executive team and thinking about who should we bring in to really ramp up the team, there is a tendency to go after people that have the illustrious CV without spending the time to really check that A, they're qualified for the role, but B, that they are a complementary addition to the leadership team and you know not someone that's going to you know derail where the company's going. So I think Getting talent wrong from an assessment point of view is is what I see a lot. And then I think the other thing is not being intentional about people and culture. So fortunately, in the EQT Ventures portfolio, I think we've got a great set of founders who are very people-centric and very talent-centric. But that's not universal, I would say, across founders. So I think for all the reasons we, we spoke about earlier, it's important to understand that people is a lever for mm. growth and innovation. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned that the, the founders have that people-centric approach. And I wonder whether that is partly because the EQT founding team are all ex-operators that know the importance of how you build and scale successful businesses, because it's it's just, I'm, I'm particularly passionate about it. And I, I, so I get it. But um, I think there's there's many examples where, you know, VC firms and, and portfolio companies don't get that right. So um, yeah, I'm not surprised at the success EQT has uh, with that at its core. Um, and, I, and I think we spend, uh, we try and set the example there because in the pre-investment process, when we're just getting to know a founder and their team and having discussions about a potential investment, I meet the founders as part of that process. And so we're having conversations about talent and team very early on. And then if they do become a portfolio company, that seed has already been sown. And so it, you're not starting from scratch. You've already done some of the work and, and hopefully got them thinking about talent way before um, you've become their investor. That's great. So your, your role is very uh, diverse and I can imagine it's, it's intellectually stimulating and you mentioned you've also a sort of qualified coach as well now so are there particular bits of the job that you really love and that you spend more time on or is it kind of a, a real depending on the day and it's a real mixed bag yeah I think no no day is the same and it's kind of cliche but it, it really is the case and I think that's because obviously we have a really varied portfolio so there is a sort of 
a level of context switching if I've got lots of conversations or lots of meetings with portfolio companies it could be there's lots of different things that, that yeah. are being built in the portfolio um yeah my, my role at EQT is split between supporting the investment team with deals that they're looking at and founders that they're, they're talking to and supporting the portfolio companies and I absolutely love supporting the founders to build their own teams and invest in in talent in their organizations and also you know connect them to best practice that exists however I, I do get really excited about the work I do internally for EQT Ventures in being that partner to the investment team mm. and, and partner to the investment process so I think few VCs are spending, you know, the level of time required to make really um, sound evidence-based decisions around the people behind companies. In, yeah, in venture capital, I think there's a lot of attention spent, you know, really digging into company financials and market and, you know, growth potential. But I, I do think there's really, really important information to uncover and, and learn about the team and the founders building the company. So I love playing that role. Um, I love being that support. I'm definitely not playing a Simon Cowell role where I, on the X Factor where I'm saying you should fund this founder or you shouldn't fund this founder, but I am enriching the process, the information gathering process, I guess, by um, offering a different perspective on the talent behind the, the company that we're looking at. I think it's so, so fundamental to get that right. So uh, that sounds so interesting. As you'd probably expect, we, we speak to a lot of people that want to make this coveted move into VC. Uh, so because it's, it's, it's traditionally a difficult move to make. Um, so what tips do you have for anyone listening to this that, that, that really wants to work at someone like EQT Ventures? What sort of skills do you think they should be focusing on building? And what characteristics do you look for in potential, I guess, investors? Yeah, I think one thing I've observed over the last few years at least is that the traditional archetype of what a VC or what an investor looks like is changing. And I think that's partly in response to changing expectations from founders. And so what I'm seeing is that in order to be a good investor today, I think what's prized and what's valuable is being able to offer something as that investment partner to a founder that is going to help them build the organization and build the company. That usually comes best, I think, in my opinion, is uh, from experience of being an operator or a founder yourself. So Mm -hmm. again, it's that I think that gives you empathy, but I also think it does give you really relevant knowledge and expertise and, you know, introductions that you can make, which you may not be able to do so easily if you come from a pure financial and investing background. I'm sure many people would disagree with that. And obviously I'm I'm quite biased because I work for a a very sort of operational value add VC, but at least what I hear from our portfolio founders is that is what really matters. It's like, is this investor going to help push forward our growth trajectory as a company not just through the capital that they invest, but also mm. from the knowledge and the expertise that they're able to share with us. And I think that's most relevant if you've been on the other side of the table. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that will be, there'll be lots of people listening to this that will take that advice on board, I'm sure. I wanted to talk a little bit about DNI. We touched upon it earlier, Zoe, but uh, you're one of the very few sort of female partners in BC. It's historically been a you know, uh, uh, kind of a shameful part, I guess, of the, the investing industry. And I know that efforts are being made to improve things, but I'd love just to get your thoughts on, on how the VC industry is doing and what things can be done differently to, to change that dynamic. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there is a lot to do <laughs> in short. I think historically it's been really, really hard to, as you mentioned, get into VC. And I think that 
because networks have played such a huge role in the hire in deciding who gets hired into a venture capital firm, it's it's meant that we've ended up with a really sort of homogenous group of people <laughs> that are uh, running funds. However, on on the positive side, I think that especially in the last couple of years, lots of great things have come out from from the VC ecosystem, which are promoting inclusion and are sort of breaking down some of those barriers. So not only are there now, you know, funds that are set up and specifically to, to fund underrepresented talent, I think there's a lot of work that's being done inside VCs to make sure that their hiring processes are, are becoming more open and, and more inclusive. So I, one of the things I do at the fund is um, sort of, offer myself as a mentor to anyone from an underrepresented background that wants to get into VC. And even if EPT Ventures is not hiring or have, if they don't have an open position, at least sort of becoming a contact in the industry mm-hmm. or in the ecosystem, I think hopefully is, is a valuable thing in itself. So I, I think we are starting to see, we've got, there's high intent. I think more yeah. action needs to, to happen still. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I guess I've been buoyed by a number of things I've seen, particularly during the course of this pandemic. And um, I guess we're all around at home a bit more. And there's, there seems to be a, that's a great excuse to kind of sort of raise awareness about this topic and actually do something about it. So yeah, that's, that's, that's great to hear. Alongside the gender imbalance in VC, it's also historically much harder for black founders to raise capital and founders of other, uh, other ethnicities. But I think particularly black founders, and we've seen some really interesting movements happening online and with with different businesses that another podcast called Represented is just, you know, being created by Dan Murray Serta, who's a fellow 40 minute mentor to, to try and combat this. What's your advice for any black founders that are listening to this that are currently in that position, have maybe been struggling to get an into the VC world, but but have a fantastic idea and are looking for investment? What would you say to them? Yeah, I think first of all, it's it's about finding your way into um, a VC fund through a contact. And so I always offer myself as if anyone's listening and, you know, is struggling to make contacts in, in the industry, um, I'm very happy to be contacted um, to see right. if I can be of any help. But I think it's, yeah, part of it is getting access to, to VCs through a person. And I think even if it's just one person that you can hunt down and find and convince to, um, you know, take coffee or, or meeting with you, then that can rapidly expand into many, many introductions. I think there are also some really great communities though being set up and a lot of great initiatives. So one community in particular that EQT Ventures is a, is a, community advocate for is called YSYS, Your Startup, Your Story. And it is a fantastic community of people that are either entrepreneurs themselves building businesses or, you know, working in founder-led environments and maybe maybe they're operators, but they are, you know, building something on the side and might be seeking investment at some point. The reason why that's a really good there are links there to people that have money that could invest in your business, mm-hmm. even if you don't have any contacts going in. And also it's, it's, it's got lots of people that can just, you know, give you advice and mentorship along the way in terms of building out and refining your value proposition. So I think it's about finding a community like that uh, and then finding someone within the industry and then sort of hopefully from, from those two things, marrying them up and, and building out your network. Great. Thank you very much, Zoe. That's, that's, that's awesome. Well, we're sadly at the end. We've got three final quickfire wrap-up questions. Um, it would be remiss of me not to talk about mentorship quickly. So, Zoe, tell me your thoughts on, on mentorship. Have you got one and how has that helped your career journey? 
Yeah, I love mentorship. I think it's been so valuable to me as I've been building, you know, moving along my career and, and building my, I guess, yeah, professional trajectory. I do have mentors. I tend to refresh my mentors every so often, though, depending on the phase of life that I'm in or, you know, the role that I'm in. So upon starting this role at EPT Ventures, I remember seeking out a few mentors who had already played a talent role in a, in a fund just so I could sort of, you know, learn from, you know, the pitfalls <laughs> that they've experienced and also try to get an understanding of how they create value in, in their roles in the funds that they were working for. And then last year, um, I had a baby, became a mum. And so now oh, I think when I look at my <laughs> thanks when I, when I look at my mentor circle, it's a lot of working mums and people that are executives and also parents. So I think depending on phase of life I'm in, my, my mentors change. But I do think it's super powerful and it really accelerates your your learning curve. So I'm a big yeah, fan of it. Completely agree, and I th- I like the idea of having different mentors for different stages. I think um, yeah, we've said on this many a time that mentorship does come in different forms and and why not uh, evolve them all the time uh, i think that's that, that, that's a great great bit of advice and i always like to look ahead at the next sort of 12 months what 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 have you got in store for yourself personally and also at eqt yeah so at eqt i think it's about continuing to grow our team and grow our network especially so one of the advantages I think we have as a as a fund is that because everybody has been an operator or a founder, we have this mm. amazing network of operators um, that we can connect our portfolio companies to. And so one of my big focuses for this year is like making that far more visible and accessible for our portfolio companies. So that's one project I've got. It's more of sort of building the talent network out further. And then I guess personally for me, I'm really interested in organizational psychology. And I think that one of my predictions is that in the talent acquisition world and talent development world, we're going to see much more interest in candidate and employee psychology, particularly as the world has changed so much and Mm. the way that we work has changed so much. And I think that it's going to become a really, really important topic. So I am looking to stretch my expertise and, and learn a lot more about organizational psychology. And in fact, one of my mentors is a, is a really great organizational psychologist and I've been spending a lot of time with that person. Yeah, I think there's something that I, it's a topic I'm, I'm interested in, don't know enough about. So uh, next time I see you, I'll be picking your brains. <laughs> um, and finally, Zoe, for any listeners that are thinking about making a, a big career move right now, uh, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? One piece of advice I always give to someone evaluating a career move or or thinking about one is to play back the question of opportunity cost. And this probably comes from my EF recruiting days because this was a a core recruiting message. But I think that in any decision about your career, there there is an opportunity cost associated to it. And so I always like encouraging people to think about what will be gained or or lost from potentially making a move. What might you be missing out on if you were to stay where you are? And that's always helped me personally evaluate career, career decisions. And then I think the last thing is just I'm a big fan of making a career move based on the people and so you know I think that the role is is probably secondary to working with someone great that you can learn from and so um, I'm a very sort of people-based decision maker when it comes to any career moves. Brilliant I think that's a wonderful place to leave it Uh, Zoe it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for being such a great 40-minute mentor and we wish you all the very best for the year ahead Um, excited to see see what happens. Thank you. Cheers Zoe. 
I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.